Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and uh, we're going to uh, continue our sermon series. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles that we have underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page 1063. And while you are turning there, uh, I want to just plant a seed um, of excitement. I'm super excited about something that we're going to be doing as a church this uh, Christmas season. I just want to give you a little information, hopefully just enough to get you excited and and, uh, wanting to know more. Um, But ultimately, every every December, people tend to give a little more. You'd get your year-end giving in and so on and so forth. And this year, we want to really encourage you to do that as normal. uh, But we want you to give maybe even a little more than you normally would. Not a whole lot more, but some more. We're going to collect what we're going to call the Christmas offering. And the Christmas offering is going to be something that we'll all try to contribute to over and above our normal giving, but it's going to enable us to do some really amazing things. And in the next few weeks, I'll be giving you a little more information about how much we're looking for and what we're going to do with it. But uh, when you hear about it, you're going to be so excited. I'm just going to tell you a couple things in general terms. Uh, like, for example, one of the things that we're wanting to do uh, that the Christmas offering will help us with is to move forward with a plan that we have to bring the gospel to many more of our Hispanic neighbors here in the area. Some of you might be familiar with the fact that uh, in some neighborhoods around here, as high as 37% of the people who live in those neighborhoods are from a Hispanic heritage. How amazing is that? How exciting is that? And so we have a plan that's been put together for how we can reach them with the good news of Jesus. And so that's going to be part of uh, what the Christmas offering goes to. Also, Uh, We want to use it to uh, purchase something that will assist us in serving some of the people in our church who have uh, a physical need. And so I'll tell you more about that in the coming weeks as well. And then third, I don't know which one of these I'm most excited about, but the third one, uh, it's the Christmas offering is going to go towards us being able to give something to an organization that we partner with, and once they have this thing, it will literally result in the saving of human lives. I'm not speaking metaphorically. I'm talking about human lives will be saved by us giving this gift. So I want you to get excited about that. We all give more in December anyway, so we're just going to target it, and we're going to do some things that we believe God is calling us to do, reaching our Hispanic neighbors, uh, buying something that will help serve people here who have a physical need, and then purchasing something for an organization which will empower them to save some lives. So exciting. Um, I encourage you to be praying about it about uh, how much God would put on your heart to, part, to uh, contribute to our Christmas offering. And then also, um, get excited. Think about this. It's going to be awesome. Watch your mailboxes. We're going to send out a letter this week, and it's going to give you a little more information. And uh, that will help you understand a little more of what we're doing. So in the meantime, be praying. If we, if we don't have your physical address... Um, you should definitely get that to us. You can talk to one of the people at the welcome desk when you leave or call the church um, and we'll, we'll get you on there. So be watching your mailbox and we'll tell you more about it. Okay, let's look at Jesus. Uh, if you are there, if you're not there, uh, Mark 1, uh, 14 through 20 is our text for this morning. Hear now God's holy and true word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do look into your perfect word, your powerful word, which does not return to you void, we just ask that you would work in our hearts and help us to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text. And we pray that you will use this time to make us more like him, uh, that we would be more equipped to run with this good news to our neighbors and to the nations, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It's, uh, it's funny how much talk there is these days about laws and freedom. Uh, there's kind of a cultural norm that we have in our country that we all want to be free, but yet we know that that takes laws. It's just something we understand. We need certain laws, the right laws, to provide and protect freedom. Isn't that interesting? Like we say, I want to be free, so there better be some laws that protect my freedom. Interesting paradox, if you think about it. And I want to actually celebrate that. This has, I'm not going political here, okay? I'll never do that. But, but I do want you to think about the fact that, that we can celebrate the fact that part of our makeup, part of how we're wired, is we understand that freedom's a good thing, yet if there are not certain laws, then that freedom will be uh, diminished or taken away. And that cultural aspect of our modern American Western mindsets is really helpful in understanding Jesus' mission, Jesus' cross-shaped mission, the mission that he came uh, to fulfill and, and, and how it was shaped by the cross that he would eventually hang upon for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, with that in mind, and since we're going to be thinking about freedom, uh, we're also going to be thinking about repentance and faith as we look at what Jesus preached. And so, your gospel fact for this morning is this. The cross-shaped life is marked by repentance, faith, and freedom. The gospel, or the cross-shaped life is marked by repentance, faith, and freedom. So if you're making an outline, we're going to talk about two things today, the kingdom of God and the triumph of Christ, and then essential elements of discipleship. In other words, essential elements of the cross-shaped life. That's the phrase that we're using to describe uh, discipleship. So, so the kingdom of God and the triumph of Christ, and then essential elements of discipleship. Let's start out by looking at verses 14 and 15 to talk about the kingdom of God and the triumph of Christ. If you're new or a guest with us, we like to just walk right through this text. So keep your Bibles open and let's look right at these words. Uh, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what we want to see is that God's kingdom is God's liberating rule and reign. Okay, it's what it means when we see the word kingdom of God, we're talking about his rule, his reign, his liberating rule. 
Okay, that what he calls us to is actually freedom. God's law set us free. We'll see that a little bit here as we as we continue. Look at the fact that uh, Mark says that this is after John was arrested. I love how he does this because it sets us in the right direction to be thinking about another arrest. In fact, uh, if you're looking there at verse 14, the word arrested, the Greek word actually literally means handed over. And what's powerful about that is you've got Mark noting the fact that John the Baptist, who came preaching about repentance, was handed over. And what that shows, it's a reminder that people who come and preach repentance are going to be handed over. And that points us directly to the cross that Jesus would eventually hang upon. In fact, Mark uses the same exact word here as he does when he refers to Jesus being handed over to Pilate and Pilate handing over Jesus to be crucified. So right out of the gate, right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, we see a reminder of the cross. We see how everything he's doing is really shaped by the cross that he will hang upon in due time. And so that's something to consider. Also, look at this. It says uh, Jesus came into Galilee. Galilee. Man, I would love to spend a whole lot more time on that fact, considering the fact that guess where, and we, we know this, we just looked at this a few weeks ago when we talked about the Great Commission. Where did he give the Great Commission? You can say it out loud. Galilee. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would begin his mission to make disciples. Part of his mission was making disciples, and he did it in Galilee, the very same place that a few years later he will gather those disciples and send them from Galilee to make disciples of all nations. Another thing to help us understand what's happening here is the word gospel itself. We talk about gospel a lot. We say it's good news, and it is. But one thing that uh, we don't think about, maybe, is that it actually, it literally means news that brings tremendous joy. It's actually two Greek words sandwiched together, uh, a Greek word that means joyful and then a, a word that means an announcement or news. So the gospel is some sort of amazing news that is supposed to bring us tremendous joy. Wow, that's amazing news. That's how uh, we ought to respond to the gospel if we understand what it is. And then uh, he, he look at this. So he preaches the gospel. And what's he saying? Look at the text now. I want you to see this. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That is supposed to make you and me say, yes, yes, I have joy over that. Okay, let me let me flesh this out a little bit. When he says the time is fulfilled, he's using a word that doesn't just mean like, oh, what time is it? No, he's using a word that means a specific time, a very critical, important time. In other words, he's saying this is a defining moment. This is one of the most important moments in the history of the world. Right there at that moment, as Jesus was beginning his ministry, he says this is a profoundly important moment and a profoundly important time, defining time for the history of the world. Why? Why, Jesus? Look what he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if we understand how the New Testament authors use that word kingdom, uh, it, that's, that's what really helps us to see what is actually being communicated here. When I hear kingdom, I usually think, uh, you know, like a castle with a moat uh, and uh, some, a king and some knights. Go knights. What about UCF? I mean, are we kidding? How good are they right now? Okay, back on track. 
So my, my normal thought of kingdom is that it's a place, right? And that's not altogether wrong or harmful for the view, but, but ultimately, when the New Testament authors are referring to the kingdom of God, they're talking about God's reign, His rule. They're talking about people submitting to the will of God. Think about the Lord's Prayer. We just prayed it. And in that, we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And that is an example of what how the word kingdom of God is used in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's God's will being done. Wherever God's kingdom is, you know that it's there because his will is being done there. Okay? Now, so, so why is this so important? Well, ultimately, what we're seeing here is something that we've never seen. We're seeing something the world has never, ever seen before. On ultimately, what that is, is a human being in perfect submission to God's will. Flawless, perfect submission to God's will. Jesus is saying that right there, right now, there is a human being who has never sinned, who has never done anything against God's will. And ultimately, we have the first person who's ever successfully submitted to the reign of God on earth. This has never happened. Because in the beginning, when, uh, when after the, the Adam and Eve were created, eventually, guess what happens? The devil comes along. You know this. We know this. The devil comes along and he tempts them to disobey and they give in. And they sin and they plunge the world into sin and misery. And that's why you and I are sinners. That's why we have a sin nature. That's why we are prey to the temptations of the devil. And now, right here, Jesus is saying, this is the most important time in the world. This is the most important time so far in the history of the world. Because here stands a human being who did not fall prey to the temptation of the devil. Think about last week. He goes out for 40 days and the devil gives him everything he's got, trying to get him to sin, trying to get him to fail in any way. And the devil fails. Jesus succeeds and therefore can stand there and say, the kingdom is at hand. God's will is being done on earth. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the fact that for the first time ever, there is a human being who is completely in submission to God, even in the face of tremendous temptation. That is news that brings joy. When you think about the fact that we all have a tremendous amount of regret and, and sadness, we feel guilt and shame over the fact that we've been tempted and then we've sinned. I mean, if we went around the room, I would imagine most of us could point to some sort of something, some way we were tempted just in the last few days, if not even today, and we gave in, we sinned. And so the picture of someone standing there saying, I have done this. It's incredible news. It's incredible news thinking about the fact that all of the horrible things in the world are a result of sin. And every time we sin, we're tempted. We're tempted and then we sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. But when we sin, it's because we were tempted. So all the war and the murder and the rape and the hatred and the racism, all the, 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 the theft and the drug addictions and the horrible situations that people live in, broken families, different things that just tear apart our families and our society and our world, everything, it's all a result of sin. And sin is always our failure to remain faithful to God in the face of temptation. And so then Jesus stands here and he says, this is an incredibly important time because now for the first time ever, a human being 
is in complete submission to the will of God. The kingdom is at hand. The reign of God is present on earth because it's present in Christ. You know what happened? He literally advanced human nature. He made it possible for you and I to not fall prey to the temptation of the devil. Now, we don't become perfect. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is an incredible picture of Jesus moving forward, advancing human nature, moving us back towards being the image of God flawlessly, which will be in the end. Now, here's what's so amazing. I was talking to uh, David Bolanos. He's one of our interns and RTS student. And he was remarking about how this is so cool because it really is a picture of Jesus as the new Moses, right? Think about Moses. Uh, Moses was the man that God raised up to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They were enslaved to Pharaoh all day, every day. They were slaves, working, working, working. Uh, they were crying out to God for help. And so God answers and he sends Moses. Moses goes and basically does some battle with Pharaoh. And then eventually Pharaoh lets his people go. And so imagine Moses running to the Israelites and saying, hey, we can go. We're free. He said we can go. Get your stuff. We got to go. And they go and they leave Egypt and they go through the Red Sea. Noah made the Red Sea out of his macaroni yesterday. It was pretty awesome. He parted it. He's like, look, Dad, Moses. Anyway, so, so the reality is like he, I mean, what, what an amazing picture though, right? What an amazing picture of, of running and running and going through the Red Sea. And now they're, they're free. They're no longer slaves to Pharaoh, and that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, look, I've done battle with the main enemy. That's the devil. And he's let us go. He's let you go. You are not his slave anymore. Let's go. Follow me. That's what he's saying. He's saying that we're not subject to the tyranny of the devil anymore. You know, we're a Reformed church. We believe and teach Reformed theology. And so we have several Reformed uh, catechisms and documents that we look to from the ages written uh, hundreds of years ago that help us connect with our Reformed heritage, but also mainly help us understand Christ. And one of the greatest, and we've said it before and we'll say it again, one of the greatest uh, catechism answers, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, number one, the question one, it's uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And there's a phrase in this uh, answer that is so pertinent to what we're talking about. Here's the whole answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sin by his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Christ, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and able from from now on to live for him. That's the whole answer. Okay? But that phrase, he has fully paid for all my sin by his precious blood, that's the cross, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's what we're talking about right here. That's why it's such an amazing time, because Jesus has set us free from the tyranny of the devil, which means we don't have to be his slaves anymore, we don't have to listen to his lies anymore, we don't have to get beat up by his false teaching to us, and the way he leads us, into temptation. What else do we say in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from what? 
evil, because that's what evil does. Evil lures us in, tempts us, tries to get us to see that what God is saying is wrong and what the devil is saying is right. And then we get in all sorts of situations where we're, 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 we're feeling guilt and shame because we're being tempted and we're giving in. And what we're seeing here is that we are no longer under the tyranny of the devil. Jesus has defeated the devil. And as we follow him, what's happening is we're learning to be free. We're learning to experience that freedom. Jesus has, has set us free from the penalty of sin on the cross by dying for our sins. But he's also set us free from its power by equipping us for temptation. Now, he says, he gives us the application. Like, if that's true, if that's true, that because Jesus has defeated the devil in the wilderness, because now human beings are able to fight against temptation through faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is incredible news. And the application, he says, look at, he says, repent and believe. Those should be sweet, sweet words to us. I hear them, and I'm like, oh man, I got to admit that I'm wrong or something, but we need to, we need to change that. Let's let the word of God change our view. When we hear repent and believe, we should hear freedom because the reality is that Jesus is leading us out of our bondage to sin, out of the tyranny of the devil through repentance and faith. Both of them repenting, turning away from those things that God says is wrong to the things that God says is right. And then faith, believing deeply that God is good and that what he's calling us to is actual freedom, repentance and faith, repentance and believing, repentance and believing. And the other thing is that these words are not a one-time deal. They're actually written in the present tense, which means he's really saying, be repenting, be believing, ongoing. And so I'm going to do something and I'm going to look like an idiot. I don't care because if it helps you remember, then then that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Listen, here's what I want you to think of. It's like a dance when we're being transformed, becoming more like Christ. It's a dance. It's it's a combination of our repentance and seeing where we're wrong and striving by the power of the Holy Spirit to be right. And, and then it's faith. And those things work together in the dance. I call it the transformation two-step. Repent, believe. Repent, believe. You can get up and do this with me. I don't care. Look, I will look like a complete fool if it means that you and I are following Jesus. If it means that you and I see, oh, 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 being called to repent is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because in repentance, what I'm doing is acknowledging that, I, that I've been lied to by Satan. And I've been told the truth by God. In fact, if you think of repentance proper in the biggest sense, in, in, in the literal sense, it means to change your mind. What do we need to change our mind about? Who actually has our intentions, our best intentions at heart? Because we tend to think, as we hear the temptation from the world and the flesh and the devil to do these things that God tells us not to do, we think, yeah, that's what I should do. That'll be right for me. That's what... Our minds go to because we're sinners. And now repentance is saying, no, change your mind. Recognize that those are the lies. Those are the ways that the devil draws you back into slavery. Change your mind about what the devil is calling you to do. Change your mind about what God is calling you to do. And see it not as some sort of chains, but as the way that we're free. God is the one whose intention is to set us free. And when we 
understand that and when we believe that and when we are reminded of that, that God is the one who wants me free. Everything God commands me to do is about me being free. That's when we experience incredible transformation and, and we see that his rule and his reign is actually how he liberates us. He, by calling us to his law, he is setting us free from the tyranny of the devil. And then repentance and faith, these are, are sweet, sweet words. Because they remind us of our leader who's leading us right out of our bondage to sin. Freedom is a byproduct of repentance and faith in Christ. Ultimate, true freedom. All right. So that's good news. That is really, really good news. That's news that brings joy. Wow, we can say no when we're being tempted because we have the power of Christ in us through his Holy Spirit. And as we say no to what God tells us not to do, we're saying yes to what he does tell us to do. And we're imaging him, reflecting his glory, doing things that will bless others. It is, of course, tremendous news. And so the vehicle for all this is discipleship. The way that we experience this freedom is not just by hearing about it, but then living it. And so I want to talk about some essential elements of discipleship. Uh, and we'll have to move kind of quick here. But some essential elements of discipleship. Look at 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and jesus said to them follow me and i will make you become fishers of men and immediately they left their nets and followed him and going on a little farther he saw james the son of zebedee and john his brother who were in their boat mending the nets and immediately he called them and they left their father zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him okay essential elements of discipleship number one a transformational relationship with jesus I'm going to talk about all these individually. Uh, Number one is a transformational relationship with Jesus. Number two is participation in the mission of Jesus. Number three is a commitment to the community that Jesus was forming. Okay, so three things. Let's talk about these. Looking at verse 17, he says, follow me, follow me, and I will make you become. Follow me. Here's what's so amazing about this. You see. Jesus was acting similar to how a rabbi would have acted in that time, except for the fact that rabbis uh, would basically stand around and wait for students to come up to them. And when they were approached, the student would then ask the rabbi to teach them the law. So uh, if I was wanting to be a student of a rabbi, I'd go up to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, will you teach me? Will you teach me the law? And he'd say, sure. And you'd become his disciple and he'd teach you the law. Okay, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not stand around waiting. Rather, he goes to these guys. And what he says is, come follow the law. No. Is that what he says? Look what he says. Look what he says. Look at the, look at the text. He says, follow me. This is amazing. This means what he's saying is, look, just come follow me. Learn me. That's what he's saying. Come learn me. Come study me. Come see how incredibly glorious I am. Come see how compassionate I am. Come see how powerful I am. Come see how forgiving I am. Come learn me. That's what his call to the disciples are. Come learn me. Get to know me. Because my burden is easy. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's calling us to learn him. And the beautiful thing about that is when you do that, when you're simply studying a person, getting to know a person, it, it's almost natural. You begin to become a little bit more like him. 
some some of you are singers or like to sing and and uh you, I would imagine that uh, you would agree that, uh, you know, in country music, Miranda Lambert probably has the best voice. I mean, everybody knows that, right? <laughs> That's obvious. Um, so anyway, if you are like me and you think Miranda Lambert's really good and you're a woman, this got awkward. Um, but think about this. If you, if you think she's the one, she's got the best voice and you listen to every song she's ever sang and go to all her concerts and you listen to Miranda Lambert, Miranda Lambert, Miranda Lambert, you know what's going to ap- eventually happen to your voice? You're going to start sounding like Miranda Lambert. Maybe you're a golfer. Maybe you think you agree with Golf World, who in 2012 said Bubba Watson had the most unique swing in golf. And so you decide, I'm going to start watching Bubba Watson. And you're watching uh, all day. You're just watching all these videos of Bubba Watson or maybe several times a week. Maybe you're getting together with a group of people that are also studying Bubba Watson. And in that group, you're like looking at his swing and you're saying, see, my swing was a little off when I did this. It's not exactly like, Right? If you, if you watch Bubba Watson, if you follow him and watch him, your swing is going to start looking a little bit like his. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, follow me. Come learn me. Get to know me. Let's have a relationship. Follow me and I will make you become. You follow me. You get to know me, he's saying, and you're going to change. You know what you're going to change into? Something a bit more like me. And what we're seeing in that is we're seeing, we're, we're studying, we're learning about a person who's the only person in the history of the world to never have been subjected, uh, never fallen prey to the tyranny of the devil. So we're studying a person who's the epitome of free. And as we study him, we begin to become like him. And yes, we have to be called to that holiness, but it happens. And so one of the essential elements of discipleship, of the cross-shaped life, is that we have a transformational relationship with Jesus. Number two, uh, be, uh, mission. Uh, he calls people not only to himself, but also to his mission. He says in verse 17, uh, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, which is his way of saying, I'm going to, you're fishermen, and now I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's, it's his way of saying, look, I'm going to take you and what you're good at and how you're wired, and I'm going to take you off of your mission and put you onto mine with all your resources and gifts. Everything you've had about living your life and about living for, uh, living according to the lies of the devil, that's over. Now you're going to follow me and you're going to learn all these things, and I'm going to use you according to the way you are, according to the way that I wired you, and you're going to be on mission. You're going to become a fisher of men. That's what we're seeing here. And that's the picture of the cross-shaped life that we're looking at as a church. That as we get to know him and get to understand that we're saved by faith in him and what he has done, there's a transformation that takes place both in moral conduct, but also in our, our, our moral character, but also our missional conduct. And that's why we're, we're talking about our 2020 vision of where we're, we're being transformed by the gospel. And then its result is we're, we're, we're proclaiming the gospel with our words. We're demonstrating the gospel with our deeds. It's why we hired Michael Hart, who's been here for uh, several weeks now. And, and he's, he's working hard to help get things in order for us to be mobilized so that you and I grow more and more in our knowledge of how we're wired. So that we can participate in the mission. If you're saved, you're sent. That's something we should think about a lot. But you're sent in order to, in a, in a way that you're wired. Okay? God has already wired you perfectly for the mission He has for you, for your part in the mission of making disciples of all nations. And so, uh, therefore, uh, we, we need to see that, that a, a, a critical part of our discipleship is participating in our mission to make disciples of all nations. Now, 
uh, it's not easy. It's actually really hard. Jesus does not call us to an easy life. He calls us to a hard life. It's a difficult life. It's challenging. And, uh, and, and he, he doesn't want us to do it alone. And so this third piece, this third essential element is that we are part of the community that Jesus was building. Look again at 17 and then look at 20. It says, he said to them. And then verse 20, he called them. Which means he's calling people, not only to himself, not only to his mission, but to each other. We're called to each other. Jesus calls people to live this cross-shaped life with other people that he's called to live the cross-shaped life. And so it's so essential that we are part of a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, grace-driven community of believers with which we can experience this life together. Now, us as a big congregation... That's one of the ways. But one of the reasons we've been so uh, big on life groups lately is because that's where you really get that small group feel. Jesus worked initially and primarily with, with just a small group of people, right? And so we want to emulate that. We want to do that same thing, and we want everybody to be in a life group. Life groups are forming. If you're not already in one, we've got a life group kiosk at the back. Uh, Mike will probably be there after the service. Sign up. Find out where the nearest one is. It's so important that we are together in this. And life groups is one of the best ways to do this. Because life groups are like little churches. And we all attend the one big church together. And this is talking about the church. In fact, one author writes this about this passage. It's not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus' public ministry. In which he called fishermen into community with himself. I'll tell you what. We need community Because we need to be called to freedom. We need to continue to hear Jesus' voice calling us to freedom through repentance and faith. I need community, uh, most of all, because I'm blind to what I'm blind to. Okay? I have to be told about some of the sin that I'm getting into because I don't even realize it. And so in community, if people, if we're sharing that, if we're, if we're uh, honest with each other, and, and saying, yeah, we're all sinners. We're, we're all here because we all need Jesus. And we open up and we share with one another the things that we're struggling with. We're opening up this opportunity for us to minister to each other in Jesus' name and, and help each other along the journey as we follow him out of our bondage to sin, as we follow him in repentance and faith. You can't do this alone. You just can't. If you could, then it, it, he wouldn't have called them. We need each other. Brene Brown is brilliant. And she says this, one of the greatest barriers to connection is the cultural importance we place on going it alone. Somehow we've come to equate success with not needing anyone. Many of us are willing to extend a helping hand, but we are very reluctant to reach out for help when we need it ourselves. It is as if we've divided the world into those who offer help and those who need it. The truth is that we are both. That's the church. Those of us who've been called to Christ and to his mission and to each other because we need help and we offer help. We call each other lovingly. We sing the sweet words, sweet song of repentance and faith to one another. And the more that we're honest with each other about what we're really struggling with, look, you can be in a life group for a long time and hide. It's going to take some boldness. It's going to take resting on that justification by faith 
that we know we're not saved by what we've done. We're saved by what Christ has done. And that helps us to be honest about what we're really struggling about. And then we do it together. And repentance and faith are beautiful, beautiful words. The cross-shaped life, discipleship, it's not about getting us into heaven. Jesus did that. Discipleship is not about getting us into heaven. Discipleship is about getting heaven into us. It's about getting more of Christ into us and seeing Christ formed in us so that we continue to celebrate that we are not under the tyranny of the devil anymore. So let's be a church. Let's be a church that's honest about our sin, honest about our failures when we're tempted, celebrating the fact that Jesus won, Jesus has succeeded, and he gives us power through his Holy Spirit. Let's learn him. Let's be on mission. And let's do it together. Because ultimately, one day, Satan's time is completely over. He won't be able to tempt another person. In fact, um, one of my friends posted on Facebook, pastor over at, one of the pastors of St. Paul's posted this last week. I think you crew people will love it. And this is what he says. The good news is that God hates Satan and has a wonderful plan for the end of his life. Amen. I'm serious. I mean, that's good news. Okay. The cause of all the horrible stuff in the world is going down. And Jesus is the one to do it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need your grace uh, in order to be able to repent to one another, in order to believe. Uh, we need it. We need you. We need your grace. And so would you, would you just uh, forgive us of our sins and would you remind us of the power we have in Christ? Um, and and would, you, would you just empower us to be honest about what we're struggling with with one another? Uh, and would you just use us? Lord, we want to see a harvest. We want to see new people uh, experiencing the glory and majesty and mercy of, your, of you in Christ. We want to see that. We want to see those people here and being loved by us or at other gospel-centered church, centered churches and loved by them. We're not so interested in UPC growing. We want, we want your kingdom to be made visible. We want the gospel to advance and if you want to bring them here, we will love them, Lord. We'll, we'll fail at it and we'll need your grace for that too. But, but Lord, bring a harvest. And make us people that trust so deeply in your grace and your mercy and justification by faith that we can be honest and lean on one another as people who both offer help and need it ourselves. For the glory of your precious name, we pray. Amen.